I love the words of that song. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. As many have already said this morning, God is a good father, and today is Father's Day, uh, and so I want to join in uh, with with um, honoring and celebrating the fathers among us. Thank you for your words this morning, Terry and um, Randall, the story that you shared. Um, you know, this is a day when our culture celebrates fathers, but our culture doesn't often celebrate fathers very well or very much. In sitcoms, dads are often the butt of jokes. Uh, they're seen as clueless and aloof, um, or more often, dads are simply absent and missing. And uh, some of this may reflect some of the difficult realities that exist in our culture, but I think also it often reinforces a subtle message that dads are not that important or that their presence does not matter. Um, But our congregation has a number of very good fathers, uh, very good men who care well for their families and and love deeply, uh, people who have loved their children, their family well, and sought to show them the heart of God. And so uh, today we celebrate you. We honor you. We bless you in the name of our good Father in heaven. And as has also been said, for any for whom Father's Day might be a painful reminder of a painful relationship or perhaps a non-existent relationship, may the goodness of God, our Father, meet you in the midst of that pain today and bring healing and wholeness. May, may we all know God as our Father and friend and be a people who live in the goodness of God. So, uh, as we continue our way through Titus this morning, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 is where we are heading today uh, as we continue our way through this. So over the past two weeks, we've been considering the book of Titus, this little letter, and we looked at the first chapter, and we've seen so far Paul is writing to Titus, who is on the island of Crete, continuing the ministry that they had begun together there. Now, Crete, as we've talked about, is a place with a dark mythological past and a continuing shady reputation. The culture of Crete has been known to be one of lying and deception uh, and um, violence and, and, and selfishness. So Paul is writing to Titus to offer him insight and guidance as he seeks to minister in a place like Crete, uh, that, that uh, quite honestly is just a place that, that um, the culture is, is filled with evil and, and wrong. And the main idea of the letter is this, the way that you bring the gospel into a culture of evil is by creating a culture of goodness. The way that you bring the gospel into a culture of evil is by creating and cultivating a culture of goodness. The good news is declared by goodness. 
That's the main idea of Titus. As Paul will write elsewhere in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Titus is all about. So last week we read Paul's guidance in beginning to create this culture of goodness. He says to appoint leaders with good character. He tells Titus to appoint elders and overseers who, among other things, love what is good. Love what is good. And out of their good character and their love of goodness, this culture of goodness begins to flow. And all of this is to counteract the influence of a rebellious, deceptive, corrupted bunch of people who have been causing disruption and teaching things they ought not to teach. And this is where chapter 2 picks up. And Paul shifts from talking about the leaders of the church community to the everyday lives of the people within the church community. So the question is, what does goodness look like in everyday life? And how can that goodness declare the good news of a good God? So let's read Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Likewise, uh, uh, sorry, jump down too far. Uh, what is appropriate to sound doctrine? Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they should live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them an example by doing what is good. And your teachings show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you for the invitation you have to live in light of your goodness. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you read the weekly email that I send out, you might have noticed the last couple of weeks I added a little section uh, called Recommended Reading uh, to go along with this series on Titus and the goodness of God. One of the books that I put in that list is called This Beautiful Truth, How God's Goodness Breaks into Our Darkness by Sarah Clarkson. She opens this book with two summertime stories from her childhood. In the first story, she recounts wandering through a beautiful field where, hear her words, abruptly and more completely than I can describe, my sense of time was suspended. As I lifted my face to the great blue dome of the sky, brimmed with the honey-tinged light of late afternoon, the sounds of the earth grew distant, and a quiet came into my mind and body. For one mesmerizing moment, I became aware of the personal, present goodness thrumming in every atom of the world around me. I knew that this was the beauty whose presence I yearned to touch and the mystical beauty of those butterfly wings. I knew that I was encountering God. And I knew with a knowledge as pervasive within me as my own heartbeat that I was loved, loved, loved. Isn't that beautiful? Just a beautiful image of a memory from her childhood. I became aware of the personal, present goodness thrumming in every atom of the world around me. Have you ever had a moment like that? Right, A moment, an encounter with beauty or goodness that just felt transcendent, where you became aware of a presence beyond yourself. You became aware that that the goodness of God is real and true. It's wonderful. The next story that she tells is not one on a bright afternoon, but takes place in the middle of a dark night later that summer. She writes, I had been kissed and put to bed as usual by my parents. I lay in the darkness, waiting for the usual descent of sleep. But my brain seemed strangely wired, 
My thoughts came faster and faster, and they began to careen toward images of horror that terrified me. My heart beat hard. I closed my eyes, but that was no help. My imagination ran at a frenzied pace, peopling the room I couldn't now see with evil shapes and images. She goes on to describe the episode I experienced that night in its fullness for the first time was a warning shot by a mind on the edge of breaking. It would be eight more years before I was diagnosed with a lesser form of OCD, when stress hormones complicated my body and triggered the full expression of my mental illness. And she shares quite a bit more about her wrestle with that throughout her life in the book. The second story is an experience filled with anxiety and terror. She describes it as a mind on the edge of breaking. Perhaps you have felt something like that as well. After she shares these these two very different stories from her childhood, one of of utter beauty and transcendence and another of, of utter terror and fear. She poses a question. She says, In that marvelous and terrifying summer of my little girlhood, I was introduced to the rival stories of the world. Is it beautiful or broken? Despair or hope? Evil or love? These are two radically different visions of what the world is like. Is it a broken place of evil to despair? Or is it a beautiful place of hope to love? In the conclusion of this chapter, she writes, beauty and brokenness told me two different stories about the world. But I believe that beauty told true. I believe that beauty told true. These two stories about the world are at the heart of what Paul is writing to Titus. What kind of world do we live in? Right, The Cretans have one story that leads them to live as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons as their own poet describes them. But the good news of God tells a different story. So the question is this, what story are our lives telling? And throughout the passage, Paul urges the people to live good lives that tell a beautiful story about a good and beautiful God. So as we reflect on this chapter, I want to simply consider three things. Who is Paul referring to? Who does he address? What does Paul tell them? And then the biggest and most important question, why? Why does he say these things? So who, what, and why? 
First, who? Throughout the chapter, Paul paints with a broad brush and instructs Titus to address many different people who make up the community of the church in Crete. Specifically, verse 2, the older men. Verse 3, the older women. Verse 4, the younger women. Verse 6, the younger men. And verse 9, the slaves. These are the people who Paul uh, addresses, uh, identifies in their community. Now, in, in our modern world, this passage and those like it can be seen as hugely problematic for a number of reasons. Right Throughout history, passages like this have often been oppressively used to keep women barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen or to justify the evil injustice of slavery. And this is what happens when we read passages like this as instructions that Paul is dictating for all time instead of as guidance that Paul is giving at a particular time to a particular people. And so we'll address some of these problems in just a moment, but first I want to just observe something because we can easily miss the forest for the trees, getting caught up in the details of the passage and not seeing the amazing bigger picture. You see this list, old men and women, young men and women, slaves, are the who's who of ancient Greco-Roman society. Right? Each one has a place and a role. Each one occupies an entirely different social class. And in that culture and society, there were great big social lines drawn between each one of these groups. And apart from the day's business or household relationships, these lines were not crossed. People of different spheres and social statuses would not interact. But here's this amazing thing. Paul is telling Titus to instruct every one of these radically different groups, which means this. The church is a place where these stark social barriers simply don't exist. It's a place where all of these people are together. In everyday society, these groups do not mix. But the church becomes an alternative society where all are welcome, where all are equal. It's a place where men and women, young and old, slave and free, all gather and worship together. And it's quite frankly shocking to see a community like this at this time in the world. One of the history books I was reading as we traveled to Greece last month talked about this period in Greco-Roman society uh, whenever mystery religions and cults uh, abounded. There were all different kinds. Uh, Rome's usually pretty generous and typically tolerated them, uh, but uh, the historian writing this book described this. 
Not a few of these shadowy religions made the men who ran the Roman Empire machinery nervous. For they gave off a smell of political dissent and sometimes even the noxious threat of insurrection. These mysterious religious cults provided intellectual and cultural harbors for the powerless and the dispossessed. Women and slaves, mercenaries and foreigners flocked to their underground rituals and listened attentively to God knows what rubbish that might undermine the security of the state. One particularly obscure and troublesome sect was gaining a foothold in important cities throughout the Greco-Roman world. It was led by Jews from the Roman province of Syria, Palestine, and in time, it would come to be called Christianity. You see, this strange new religious thing called Christianity was a place where all people were welcome. The powerless and the powerful gathered together. Young men and old men, along with women and slaves, all gathered together. Never before in the history of the world had something like this occurred. We might find some of Paul's instructions antiquated and out of date, but the fact that all of these different groups, different social groups, could be addressed together was wildly progressive. Unheard of in that time. These social levels and boundaries exist in all places throughout society, but the church is not one of those places. It was an alternative society that told an alternative story about the world. All are welcomed, all participate, all were one together. So that's the who. That's the who is being addressed. Now, the what. What does Paul say to them? Well, in verse 1, Paul begins by telling Titus to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So what is this teaching and this sound doctrine? Normally, we'll hear words like that, and we think of theology, of religious instruction, but what follows in the rest of this passage is not abstract ideas about God and religion. Rather, the things that Paul tells Titus to teach are character qualities. He doesn't instruct them in what to believe. He's instructing them in how to live. And so what does he say? Well, he tells the older men to be temperate or sober, to be worthy of respect, which means they aren't automatically worthy of respect just because of their social status as elder men. They actually have to live lives that are worthy of respect. He tells them to be self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and endurance, which sounds quite a lot like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Faith, hope, and love. 
right? These are the things they are to live in and embody. He tells the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. Several commentaries that I read describe this as living like a priestess in the temple of your life. Isn't that beautiful? He tells them not to slander others or to be addicted to wine, but instead to teach what is good. There's our word again, good. This is what he's moving toward. And then to the young women, he gives guidance exclusively about things related to marriage and family and home life, telling them to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be, as the NIV puts it, busy at home and kind, to be subject to their husbands. Now, uh, I'll be honest, I usually really appreciate uh, the NIV and the way that it, it translates words and phrases. It typically does a very good job. Um, this is just a bad translation of that Greek word. Busy at home completely misses the mark. Um, it's a combination of the Greek word oikos, which means home, and ergos, which means work. So very simply, it's a home worker. Someone who works in the home. That's the most straightforward, simple translation. Busy at home misses it, right? Uh, now, this is one of the major things, one of these, the major uh, verses, perhaps, that our culture, our modern culture, would probably scoff at, right? Such an antiquated view. But... I want to suggest that it's actually Paul and not modern culture that grants more dignity to those who work in the home. Modern culture tells the lie that you have to go out there and do something great and impressive in order to be of value. Why would you waste your life as a stay-at-home parent? But here, Paul presents homemaking as legitimate, important, necessary, and dignified work. And no, it's by no means the only kind of work available to women, young or old. There are plenty of examples throughout the New Testament of Paul doing important gospel work with women beyond the home. To name just one, Priscilla, who worked as a tent maker while also leading a number of house churches along with her husband, Aquila. She did not fit this mold of being a busy-at-home woman. There are plenty of other examples in the New Testament. Here, Paul is painting with a broad brush and addressing the typical Greco-Roman young woman who would likely have been married and working in the home. And so he gives them instructions. Love your husbands and your children. Be self-controlled and pure. Work at home. Be kind. Be subject in these ways. Next, Paul tells Titus to encourage the young women, or the, sorry, the young men, to be self-controlled. 
And he tells Titus to set them an example by doing what is good. Right? There's our word again. Goodness. It's all over the place here. Finally, uh, Paul addresses slaves telling them to be subject to their masters, to try to please them, to not talk back to them or steal from them, but to be trustworthy. Now, this is another point in this passage where we modern people would take issue with, and rightly so. Ancient Greco-Roman slavery was very different than American slavery was, but it was no less wrong and no less demeaning. But in these verses, Paul is not justifying slavery. He's not dismissing it as unimportant. Rather, Paul is, is very simply addressing it as a reality in their life and in their culture. It would have been far worse if he had not addressed those who lived as slaves and just ignored them. See, as we look at this, we, we have to realize Paul does not have the power to end slavery. And in the Roman Empire, neither does anyone else have the power to do that. Only the emperor has the power to do much of anything like that. As Paul addresses Titus, and by extension the people in Crete, He's not giving instructions for how things should be all time. He's giving them gospel guidance for their time and for their circumstances and situations. And in the Jesus community of Crete, there are slaves. And he says that they are not to be like other slaves who talk back and take advantage of their master's resources, but rather are to be trustworthy, to be good in the midst of what they're doing. And so after addressing each of these groups of people, Paul goes back and summarizes everything in the first couple verses of chapter 3. So here's the big picture. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. That's the, the big picture of what Paul is instructing Titus to share with the people. So that's the what, right? Who does he address? He addresses all these groups of people who in the church are one community, not a division of a bunch of different people. And, and what does he tell them? Well, he, he gives them instructions for living well. And so the last question is, well, why? Why, why does he do this? Why these instructions? Why should they be so concerned with doing what is good? Well, Paul actually tells us why several times throughout this passage. In verse 5, he says, So that no one will malign the word of God. 
In verse 8, he says, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then in verse 10, he says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Right? He'll make the, the, the teaching of God, our Savior, beautiful. The reason they're living matters is because their lives are telling a story about the world. And their lives are telling a story about God. Their lives of goodness tells a story about the good news. And so what is that story? What is that story that they're living in? Well, Paul tells it, beginning in verse 11. Here's the story. The grace of God has appeared, and it offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The story is this. His grace has appeared. And his glory will appear. And as a people living in between these appearances of grace and glory, our lives are to show forth the grace and glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come and will come again. We live as a redeemed people, we live as a hopeful people. We live as a people eager to do what is good because we belong to Jesus and we believe that He is coming to make all things new, to make all things good again. You see, every culture has its definition of the good life. And that directs the story that we live. In Crete, the good life was lying, stealing, and probably literally getting away with murder. In America, the good life often amounts to comfort, success, wealth, right? Having a nice lawn that you can tell other people to get off of. That's the good life in America. But if you want to really know what a good and beautiful life looks like, look to Jesus. Look at Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people, his very own, eager to do what is good. What is your vision of the good life? 
Does it look more like comfort and wealth? Or does it look like giving ourselves up for others? Caring for them. Being good to them. How do we understand the good life? Because that shapes the way that we live. Because it's the story that we believe and the story that our lives tell. The story of the gospel is that his grace has appeared and his glory will appear. This is the story that our lives should tell. And so as Sarah Clarkson wrote, beauty and brokenness tell two different stories about the world. But I believe that beauty told true. So will our lives be good and beautiful? Will our lives tell what is true? That's what this good news calls us to. In closing, I want to make three practical observations for us uh, about this passage and invite some self-reflection. The first thing is this, a theme that I notice over and over and over again throughout the passage that, that pops up in almost every group that Paul addresses is this. He calls them to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Sober-minded and self-controlled. And I think this is a word that we need to hear as well. You see, the opposite of being sober-minded and self-controlled is being distracted or under the influence of some kind of substance that dims our mind and moves us out of control. And this runs rampant in our world today. But why? Well, it's because we've believed a story that the world is essentially broken, the world is essentially hopeless, the world is essentially something to despair, so we ought to do everything we can to escape it. And, well, you know, vegging out on television or, or drinking a little too much or something else will get us out of this world, at least for a moment. But Paul calls them to be sober-minded and self-controlled because the world that we live in is meant to be good and beautiful. It's actually a place that we can be awake to and hopeful for. So we're called to be present, to be awake, to be alive, to be filled with joy in each and every moment because this is a good and beautiful place because we believe in our good and beautiful God. Something else that, that is very clear throughout this passage is that he calls people to community in order to do this, right? We cannot grow in character by ourselves. We need each other. Titus is instructed to get the older women to guide the younger women. He's told to himself be an example to the young men. There's relationship being cultivated here. There's community happening here. 
And again, this is the kind of picture of the world that we have. Do we live in a world where we're essentially just cut off from one another? We're, We're talking about this earlier in class. We're essentially suspicious of one another. Uh, I don't want to get too close to you. I don't want to know you too well. I don't certainly don't want you to know me too well, right? And so we, we throw up boundaries and we make distance. Or do we live in a world where we're called to goodness, intimacy, vulnerability? You see, if we want to grow, we have to do that together. This is clear throughout the passage as all these people are drawn together into a community so that they can be renewed into a new people who show forth the goodness of God. There's one more practical observation that I want to make. And that is this. You know, we we can kind of be upset and, and troubled by, by some of these things that, that feel very much out of date with us. You know, he's talking to, to um, slaves. He's talking to, to women in certain situations. And our modern sensibilities want to say, you know, oh, get out of there. Do this. And, and there are certainly moments uh, where we need to move toward uh, freedom and move toward these things. But I believe there's a word for us here Because we often believe that, well, if only my circumstances can change, then I'll finally be able to to live as a person of God. If only my circumstances change, then I'll finally be able to live the good life. But Paul says to them exactly where they already are, your life can shine forth the goodness of God. Your circumstances don't need to be changed. You don't need to go out there or do that thing right where you are. In the middle of your life, the goodness of God can show forth. Right where we are, the goodness of God can shine forth. And so as we consider these things, I simply want to ask you, what is God speaking to you today? What does it look like for you to live in the goodness of God? Have you believed a story about the world that is more hopeless than hopeful? Have you believed a story about the world that is more broken than beautiful? Have you believed that you just needed to kind of numb out or distance yourself from others? Have you believed that if only my circumstances could change a little then, I'd finally be in in alignment with, with, with things? What is God speaking to you today? Maybe there's something else. I, I want to um, try something uh, a little different, uh, and just invite, invite a response. I'm not going to call you forward and do anything like that. I'm not going to ask you to share anything or say anything. I simply want to invite you. If you feel that God is speaking to you in some way this morning, if you feel that there is a way that, that God is, is ministering to you, is calling to you, would you raise your hand? 
Now look around at the people whose hands are raised. You're not going to go pester them or ask them anything, but what I want to do is invite others around them to just reach your hands toward them. And I want to offer a prayer for those who God is stirring in today. And so extend your hands toward those who have raised their hands, and let us pray. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in the hearts and lives of people right here, right now. We bless your voice. We bless the invitations that you are giving. And we ask for more. We ask that you would lead us and guide us. That you would show us how to follow you. Lord, uh, those who have raised their hands, if, if they're feeling convicted of something, I pray that you would lead them into freedom and not shame. God, if they're feeling hopeful about something, I pray that, that you would increase their hope and faith and give them joy. Lord, we ask that, that we would see your goodness that we would live in your goodness and that we would show forth your goodness to the world around us. We ask all of this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.